Well, when it comes to roads, there are different types of roads. There are dirt roads and paved roads and country roads and superhighways and back alleys and cobblestone streets. You know, there are also some famous roads. There's Wall Street, Pennsylvania Avenue, Sunset Boulevard, Peachtree Street, that's a famous road, the German Autobahn, Boardwalk and Park Place, they're pretty famous, the road to the Final Four, that's kind of famous, of course there's the Yellow Brick Road, all kinds of roads, and then there's some even, there's even some famous roads in the Bible. In Acts chapter 9, that angry rabbi Saul became a follower of Jesus on the road to Damascus. In Luke 24, the risen Lord Jesus walked with two disciples on the Emmaus road. And in Acts chapter 8, Philip met an Ethiopian on the road to Gaza. But of all the roads, biblical or otherwise, the most famous road in all history is the Via Dolorosa. This is the path that Jesus took from Pilate's judgment hall to a hill called Golgotha to the tomb of a rich man named Joseph. The term Via Dolorosa is Latin for the way of sorrows. And indeed it was. And this evening, I want to take you down a walk through the Via Dolorosa. Now, I would prefer that we charter a plane and fly you all over there tonight. Wouldn't that be fun? To go to Jerusalem's old city, we could explore its arches and its stone streets. We could even walk the alleyways together. Yet there are some Jerusalemites who comb these streets every single day, and they never feel the importance of the events that we're going to discuss tonight. They're oblivious. Likewise, there are people who read John chapter 19 and take for granted what happened there. That's why tonight I'm praying that something else happens to us this evening. That as we read John's account of the cross, I'm praying that it hits us in a way that only God can do. In in a way that makes it real to our hearts. I pray it hits us. He did it for us. From Tom Time to time tonight, I want to push a pause on the commentary and I want to take a moment so that we can whisper to ourselves, He did it for me. If you and I understand the real message of John chapter 19, there will be stains in our Bible on these very pages. Tear stains in our Bible on these very pages. Well, recall in John chapter 18, Jesus is betrayed by Judas. A scuffle occurs in the garden. Peter draws his sword to split the guy right down cross-section, right across his his skull. Instead, he moves at the last minute, and Peter lops off his ear, the ear of the arresting officer. Jesus rebuked Peter and then reattached the ear. Jesus was taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where he was sentenced to death by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. The Jews then shuttled him across town to Rome's governor, Pilate. Only the Romans could perform execution, so the Jews needed Pilate to sign off on their lethal hatred of Jesus. Pilate tries to win a reprieve for Jesus. He offers to release a prisoner, and he gives the Jews a choice between Jesus and what was a menace to society, a brigand by the name of Barabbas. Surprisingly, the crowd chooses the rabble-rouser. And ask Pilate to crucify the Prince of Peace. And that gets us up to speed. That brings us to chapter 19 where we pick up the story. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. This scourging had a nickname. It was called the halfway death. It was so brutal many victims never survived. The Roman flagellum consisted of 12 to 13 leather throngs attached to a single handle. A little lead ball was attached to the ends of the cords to weight the cords. Pieces of glass and metal and sometimes ivory were embedded in the thongs between the ball and its handle. The victim was tied by the wrists and dangled maybe a foot or so off the ground. 
The beating usually consisted of 39 lashes at full force. This ordeal was carried out by professional, hardcore executioners. These men were accustomed to the sight of blood and to the screams of pain. They had callous consciences. The first blows caused welts to form on the shoulders and the back. By the seventh or eighth blow, the glass and the metal had sliced through the skin layers and they were churning up muscle. It was not uncommon for a rib bone to fly off a body after a blow. The victim's back ended up the texture of hamburger meat. At the conclusion of the beating, the victim was cut down and his body would hit the pavement in a puddle of his own urine and feces and sweat and blood. The ancient historian Eusebius, he writes of the martyrs who endured these beatings. He says they were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs, were exposed. One medical doctor, William Edwards, gives an accurate description of a scourging victim. He writes, The iron balls would cause deep contusions. The leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Let that sink in for a moment. Quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. After the beating he took, Jesus looked like a sacrificial lamb. Now, tonight, I want you to close your eyes and let's whisper together, He did it for me. Verse 2. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. These thorns were briars, sharp, pointed needles. There are several species of plants all around Jerusalem that grow such thorns. And understand, the torturers didn't lightly lay the crown on Jesus' head. They smashed it into its place. They literally screwed its needles into his scalp, like little daggers that caused blood to flow down Jesus' disfigured face. Here's the only crown our Lord Jesus ever wore on earth, a crown of thorns. He was king, king of kings, but the only crown he ever wore was a crown of thorns. You know, it's interesting, since it was man's sin that brought thorns and thistles into an originally perfect world, now it bearing the sin of the world, it was symbolically fitting for Jesus to be crowned with a wreath of thorns. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. The prophet Isaiah speaks prophetically of an additional gory detail not mentioned here in the Gospels. In Isaiah 50 verse 6, we have a prophecy quoting Jesus 700 years before his first coming. He said prophetically, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. This is what we don't get from the Gospels, that they plucked out his beard. I remember when my kids were babies, I, I sported a beard. And at times they would put their little hands, they'd grab my beard with their little hands. And you know the, how babies have that little uh, yanking reflex, you know? And they would stick their fingers in my beard and they would grab a big handful and all as they pull my beard. And it hurt. But imagine grown men ripping out your beard, yanking out handfuls of skin and blood and flesh. Hey, close your eyes and whisper to yourself, he did it for me. Today, when you go to the old city of Jerusalem, you can visit the place where the scourging of Jesus actually took place. It's called the lithostratus or the raised pavement. It's the literal translation. This was part of the Antonio Fortress, part of Pilate's Judgment Hall and the Roman headquarters there on the Temple Mount. Today the pavement is several feet below street level, but excavations allow you now to walk on the stones over which Jesus was scourged. 
Whenever I'm there, the reddish color of the stones give you the impression that they're stained with blood. And in a sense, they are. It always stuns me to realize that Jesus' DNA is somewhere down in the crevices of those stones. For me, the lithostratus is holy ground. It's a powerful place of reflection. I love to go there. An amazing discovery took place at the lithostratus. Carved into the stones, they found lines and circles that make a game that Roman soldiers would play on their victims. In fact, it wasn't unique to Israel. They found this same game in Roman outposts all around the empire. But it gives us insight into actually what they did to Jesus. It was called the Game of the Kings. And it was designed to mock the victim and entertain the calloused soldiers. This is why they twisted the crown of thorns on Jesus' brow, why they threw a purple robe on him. Apparently, it was all part of this game. Here's a picture of the game. The circle, if you can make it out there, is a crown. They would mock the victim, calling the king. The B is the initial for basilicus, or Latin for king. The scorpion is the symbol of the Roman legion. The double square is the dice that the soldiers would use. They would roll as they played the game. We don't know exactly how it was played. There's also embedded in the rock, there there is a horizontal line that represents the victim's life. And you notice later, a sword crosses that line, which indicates where in the game the victim loses his life. This all adds to the horror of what was done to our Lord Jesus. Imagine this. They played a game with God's only son. They made a sport of killing God. Amazing. Verse 4. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Eki homo, or behold the man. Today, Pilate's words, eki homo, is a famous phrase. It challenges the skeptics to examine the majesty and miracles and identity of our Lord Jesus. Eki homo, behold this man. If you take the time, if you make the effort to behold the man, your doubts will flee, your faith will grow, you'll fall down. And you'll worship Jesus as Lord and God. But it's interesting, when Pilate first uttered these words, they were an attempt to conjure up sympathy for Jesus. Behold the man. For as cruel as it seems, the awful scourging that Pilate inflicted on our Lord was really an attempt to engineer Jesus' release. Pilate's thinking, how could anyone with a shred of decency not pity a man who had just endured such torture? Surely the Jews will say enough and mercifully set Jesus free. But when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Some of the same folks who days earlier greeted Jesus on the Mount of Olives with Hosanna, Hosanna, are now crying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. He wanted no part in this lynching. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. If you read Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, it was Pilate's wife. History knows her as Claudia Procula. Claudia Procula had sent word to her husband concerning Jesus. Matthew quotes, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. It seems his wife's dream 
It seems the power of Jesus' presence. Now, this claim of him being God's son, this all combined to shake Pilate up. He doesn't like the responsibility of this decision. He certainly he wants to placate the Jews. That's his job. But he can't escape the searching eyes of this man named Jesus. Pilate is a politician. He's a professional compromiser, and he's trying to compromise with the Jews, and he doesn't understand why they won't work with him. Verse 9, And he went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? In other words, Jesus wasn't interested in chit-chat at this point. I mean, here, Jesus isn't going to release any more new information to Pilate until Pilate's willing to obey what he already knows to be true. In fact, why should Jesus talk to anybody who won't obey what he's already told them? Could that be why Jesus isn't talking to you? Pilate tries to threaten Jesus, flex his Roman muscle. Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Pilate thinks he's in control, but he's just a pawn in a bigger drama. Everything here is unfolding according to God's will. In reality, it wasn't Jesus who was on trial before Pilate. It was Pilate who was on trial before before Jesus. And then Jesus adds the observation. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Jesus almost empathizes with the difficulty of Pilate's predicament. He's basically saying, Judas is the one who knew better. Judas is the one who has the greater sin. For Judas had logged three and a half years with Jesus. Yet he had denied what he'd learned, and he'd betrayed his master. Pilate interviews Jesus just one time, and now he has to make this very important decision. What will he do with Jesus? You know, sometimes life unfolds in unexpected ways, doesn't it? All of a sudden, a major decision gets thrust upon us. Here, Jesus is encouraging Pilate to make the right decision. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Remember, Caesar was his boss. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that the Jews had already complained to Rome about Pilate's heavy-handed tactics and his insensitivity toward their religious concerns. This has put Pilate between a rock and a hard place. He wants to show Jesus justice, but at the same time, he's watching out for his own skin. And Pilate is going to have to choose political expediency or his own personal integrity. Well, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, But in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Again, this was the lithostratus. It was the part of the Roman garrison there in the temple, the Antonio Fortress. It's interesting, these types of pavements existed all over the empire. These were the traditional sites of Roman justice. They would always bring the criminal to the pavement. History tells us that when Julius Caesar traveled into battle, he would carry a portable mosaic pavement that he would set up to judge his conquered opponents. Verse 14, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour. Now unlike the other gospel writers, John uses Roman time. It was the sixth hour, he says, or 6 a.m., 6 in the morning. The Jews, counting the hours of the day from dawn, the Romans began at midnight, and so... Uh, On the Roman time clock, this was 6 a.m. We'll talk about the meaning of the day of preparation in a moment. And Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him. Crucify him. 
Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. The motto of Rome was, Let justice be done, though the heavens fail. As a Roman, Pilate had a great respect for justice. And coupled with his fear of Jesus, he was able to hold the Jews off for a season. Yet in the end, he breaks. He capitulates to the political pressure that's being applied. When the Jews make this argument personal and they question his own loyalty to Rome, he buckles under to their political uh, bullying. There is a legend that following Jesus' resurrection, Pilate's wife, Claudia Procula, she became a Christian. But Pilate's plight was just the opposite. He eventually fell into the trap that he tries so hard to avoid here. The Jews were able to to force his removal from office. Pilate's superior, Vatilius, he ordered him back to Rome. But the disgraced governor apparently never arrived. According to the 4th century church historian Eusebius, Pilate committed suicide en route to Rome. Verse 17 tells us, And he, that is Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. The Greek word is Calvaria or Calvary. It's a derivative of our English term cranium. Jesus was taken to the place of the, of the cranium, the place of the skull. In Jerusalem, just north of the old city, outside the Damascus Gate is a former quarry. We always visited on our tours to Israel. Solomon harvested granite from this site to use in the construction of the temple. And there is a rock cliff which years ago looked eerily like a skull. Today the site is in front of an Arab bus terminal and the fumes from the buses are eroding the skull shape. But you can still see it if you look closely. And just beyond the cliff is a tomb. And the tomb is surrounded by a beautiful garden. It was in 1883 that a British general named Charles Gordon, he was staying up on that side of Jerusalem. And he was looking out his window and he saw this this skull-shaped cliff. And he identified this rocky cliff as Golgotha of Bible times. Today the hill is called Gordon's Calvary. Now understand the Romans, they would crucify criminals in the public square for all to see. The whole point of a crucifixion was to scare the populace, to to let them know that Rome was in control, that they had no rights. It was a bullying tactic. It was the same sort of atmosphere created by a public hanging in the Wild West. It was a deterrent to future rebellion from from the public. That meant that usually the crucifixions were in a public place. They were either by the road so that everyone would see as they came by, or they were on top of a hill near the road so everyone would see uh, from an elevated spot what was going on. Golgotha is alongside the road to Damascus. And so either Jesus was crucified at the top of the mountain for everyone to see, or he was crucified at its base right next to the road. We, we don't really know. When we think of the cross, we imagine the traditional shape in the form of a lowercase t. But Roman crosses were configured in all sorts of ways. Some were like X's, some were Y-shaped, some were just single poles or I's, some were even uppercase T's. We're not sure the actual shape of Jesus' cross. He was, though, or he would have been forced to carry his crossbeam. Imagine a wooden timber that weighed probably 75 to 100 pounds. Jesus had to carry it himself. And he had to carry it quite a distance from the fortress at the heart of the city, north of the city, beyond the walls to Calvary was quite a distance. We're told at Calvary they crucified him. And never skip over that phrase, they crucified him, for it is packed with meaning. 
Crucifixion was the most heinous form of execution ever devised by mankind. C.S. Lewis once noted, The crucifixion did not become common in art until all who had seen a real one had died off. If you had seen a live crucifixion, you would have had nightmares for months. The victim's body was stretched out on a single piece of timber. His ankles were coupled together, and an iron spike was driven through the ankles into the wood. A large spike was then nailed into the wrists of the victim. The wood was then lifted to an upright position where the weight of the victim's body would press against the wounds, causing searing pain. Every breath the victim took required for the crucified to press down on the wounds just to hike up his torso so he could expand his lungs and take in a breath. Some victims collapsed and suffocated to death. Other men died of heart ruptures. Non-oxygenated blood gets sluggish. The blood pressure drops. The overworked heart literally explodes in the chest cavity. Who crucified Jesus? The Jews? Yes, the Jews played a part. The Romans? Oh, yes, their hands were on the, on the crime. But who really crucified Jesus? Here's where you need to whisper again. He did it for me. We drove the nails into Jesus' hands and into his feet. It's been said, every man is born with a fistful of nails and he dies with his hands empty. We're all guilty. And two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Usually the worst criminal was crucified in the middle. It seemed grossly inappropriate at the time. But since Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, it was right for him to be the centerpiece. Verse 19. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Remember, Jerusalem was, it still is in fact, a cosmopolitan city. And Jews from all over the world visit Jerusalem for Passover. Thus, this placard describing the accusation against Jesus could have been read by the three common languages of the day, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. It's interesting. Hebrew was the language of religion. Greek was the language of culture and philosophy. And Latin was the language of law and government. And all three, religion and culture and government had a hand in crucifying Jesus. Verse 21. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This is Pilate's last dig at the Jews. He didn't like the fact that they had bullied him into a verdict that he didn't want to issue. So they're not going to cooperate. He's not going to cooperate with them here. Well, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now, the normal number of executioners dispatched to a crucifixion were four soldiers and one centurion. And like all G Jewish men, Jesus wore five pieces of clothing. He wore a turban or a headband. He would have worn sandals. He would have worn a belt. He would have worn an outer cloak. And then he would have worn an inner tunic. Thus, there was one piece of clothing for each of the four men, along with the inner tunic that they all could have split. But now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. Jesus' inner tunic or his undershirt would have been knee length, like a woman's nightshirt. It was long and it had no seams. 
It was a more expensive article of clothing. It was too valuable to tear. So, verse 24, they said therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. And then John adds, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Again, it was all prophetic. The details had all been foretold in advance. John makes it clear. He quotes here Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Here's the ultimate irony. Jesus bears the sin of the world while the soldiers attending his crucifixion are gambling for his shirt. God's back is torn and bleeding. His heart is breaking in pieces. The veil in the temple has been torn from top to bottom while the soldiers shoot craps for a cloak and try to avoid tearing Jesus' tunic. These men were so wrapped up in their materialism, they were oblivious to the most heroic and consequential act in the history of the world, which is exactly what describes millions of Americans tonight. Here's the materialist's prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my Keurig machine to keep. I pray my stocks are on the rise and that my analyst is wise. That all the wine I sip is white and that my hot tub is watertight. That racquetball won't get too tough and that all my sushi's fresh enough. I pray my smartphone upgrades work and my career path won't lose its perks. My microwave won't radiate and my condo won't depreciate. I pray my health club doesn't close and my money market grows. And if I go broke before I wake, I pray my Volvo they don't take. I hope none of us get caught up in the trap of living for stuff. In the web of materialism. Just earning a living doesn't make for you a life. There's more to living. We need to heed Pilate's words. Behold the man. He did this for you. Our everyday dealings pale in comparison to what Jesus did on the cross. He died to demonstrate how much he loves us and that he has a better way for us. This is a good time for us to whisper again. He did it for me. Verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Three Marys stood by Jesus as he hung from the cross. They showed more devotion and courage than most of the male disciples. Where are they? They fled, all but John. You know, it's interesting, from 1880 to 1950, more American parents named their baby girl Mary than any other name. For 1880 to 1950. In the 1950s, the most popular name was Linda. Mary was second. But then in the 1960s, Mary once more took the top spot. But that's no longer the case. Jennifer was the most popular name in the 70s and in the 80s. In the 90s, it was Ashley. In the new century, it's been Emily and Isabella and Sophia. In 2015, Emma was the most popular girl's name, while Maria finished in the 109th place, and Mary came in 124th on the list. Here's my point. For 80 years, American parents were so steeped in the Bible that it was second nature for them to give to their girls a biblical name. Not so recently. I think it's just another small indicator of how secular our society is becoming. Well, here we find three Marys at the cross. Check out the other three Gospels and you'll find another name mentioned among the ladies at the cross, Salome, the mother of James and John. Now, it's possible that she was in addition to the four ladies mentioned here in verse 25, but she also could have been 
synonymous with his mother's sister. And this would have been very provocative. For if Salome was Jesus' mother's sister or Mary's sister, if she was the sister of Mary of Nazareth, it would mean that Jesus, James, and John were all cousins. And Jesus' mother Mary was John's aunt. This family connection might help to explain what happens next. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and of course this was the way that John uh, customarily referred to himself, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own house. Usually a widow was taken in by her relatives. And it could be that John and Mary were family. And thus John took in Mary for the rest of her life. It is appalling what Roman Catholicism has done to Mary of Nazareth. They've made her co-redemptrix. Not only does Jesus give salvation, but according to the Roman church, so does Mary. According to Roman Catholicism, she is the mother of God. She is sinless. She has ascended to heaven. She is the perpetual virgin. Yet none of these doctrines are true. Mary was a good girl, but she wasn't divine. Far from it. Mary was a sinner, like the rest of us. After Jesus' birth, she had sexual relations with Joseph. She birthed other kids. She eventually died and her body was buried. She has no more clout with God than any other believer in Christ Jesus. Yet don't be guilty of the Protestant backlash. Don't be guilty of the Mary backlash. For she did follow Jesus and she showed an exemplary devotion. Of all the disciples, it's possible that Mary made the greatest sacrifice to follow Jesus. Three decades earlier, her whole world was turned on ear by the news that she would bear a miraculous birth and birth a child into the world. And imagine, now at the foot of the cross, Mary watches this child, this miraculous child, die. She watches him be brutally tortured and crucified, and executed. Her sacrifice had no atoning effect, certainly, but it was significant in God's sight. And Mary is an example to us of wholehearted surrender to God. You remember when the angel came and announced the news? You remember her response? Be it unto me according to your word. May we have that same compliance and heart of obedience. Think of what must have gone through Mary's mind now as she stands there before the cross. You mothers know. You can imagine. You wonder, did she remember the myrrh? The embalming fluid that the wise men brought to her baby? Did all of a sudden the purpose of the present finally dawn on Mary? Perhaps the words of old Simeon in the temple were still ringing in Mary's ears as she stands there before the cross when Simeon said, Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Oh boy, now she feels the stab of that sword. Mary had surrendered all of her dreams to the will of God. And now Jesus rewards her sacrifice by ensuring her future. He turns her care over to the apostle John. She would spend the rest of her life under his roof. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. This was the cheap vinegar wine that the soldiers drank. Earlier in the ordeal, Jesus had rejected the narcotic that was offered to him. The drink that was to deaden his pain. He, he, he didn't want anything to diminish the effects of what he was to endure for us. No, this was not the deadening potion. This was a, a fluid that would moisten his lips so that he could get out his final words. 
It's interesting, hyssop is a leafy, spongy, absorbent plant. And, and this means that Jesus must have been several feet off the ground since they needed a branch or, or something to lift up the sponge to reach his lips. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. The phrase, it is finished, is actually just one word in the original Greek language, tetelestai. And it was used in a number of ways. A servant finishing an assignment would say, tetelestai, I'm finished, I'm done. A priest, after inspecting a sacrifice and finding it faultless, would declare it, tetelestai. An artist, upon finishing the finishing touches on a canvas, might put the last brush stroke on it and sigh and say, Tetelestai, it is finished. And after a customer paid the balance of his bill, the merchant would write across the ledger, Tetelestai, paid in full, it is finished. And on the cross, Jesus did all this and more. For the servant of God completed the task that he was sent to do. God's high priest initiated the flawless, sinless sacrifice. The artist of God's poema of salvation put the finishing touches on the portrait of redemption. The painting he had been working on from creation. And our accountant paid the full penalty of our sin. It is finished. Jesus tied up all the loose ends that had been dangling since the beginning of time. He he finished the puzzle. He filled in all that had been lacking. Jesus invaded our imperfect world and made everything of eternal value finally and totally and beautifully perfect. On the cross, Jesus finished his work of redemption. And all that comes afterwards is simply the realization of his work. There was an old eccentric evangelist. His name was Alexander Wooten. Once he was working in his shop behind his house when an exasperated young man ran to meet him with an eager look on his face. The young man asked him, Sir, what must I do to be saved? The old man responded, It's too late. The young man became desperate. What do you mean it's too late? Please, isn't there anything that I can do to be saved? Wooten explained, It's too late for you to do anything. The work has already been done. All you have to do is believe. And this is the glorious hope of the gospel. The work has been done. Here again is the rallying cry of saints throughout the ages. Te telestai. It is finished. Once you trust in Jesus' work on the cross, all that needs to be done has been done for you to be saved and be made victorious. You know, it's interesting, when Jesus returned to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why did he sit down? Because his work is finished. That's why he's sitting down today. He's resting, and we need to rest and trust in him. We need to trust in his finished work. Here's where we can whisper again. He did it for me. Again, verse 30. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This word translated bowed, it literally means to recline your head on a pillow. And in essence, Jesus finishes his work on earth, then he lays his head in the lap of his father. Notice too the expression, he gave up his spirit. Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. He wasn't a victim, he was the victor. Jesus had been calling the shots from beginning to end. He voluntarily laid down his life for us. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now John says this was a special Sabbath. This was a high day. The normal Sabbath was on Saturday. But during Passover week, Judaism inserted a second Sabbath on Friday. Thus John says that Jesus was crucified prior to this special Friday Sabbath. Thus, the day of preparation, the day he was crucified, must have been Thursday. 
And this is one reason why many Bible teachers, including myself, believe that Jesus was not crucified on Friday. He was crucified on Thursday. In the big picture, it doesn't really matter. It's not when he was crucified. It was that he was crucified. That's what matters. But I think we really should be celebrating Good Thursday rather than Good Friday. I think Jesus was crucified on Thursday. That's just my opinion. Remember, too, Jesus predicted in Matthew 12, verse 40, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's hard to account for three days and three nights or 72 hours if Jesus was only in the grave from Friday to Sunday morning. Some folks say you count partial days. But to me, the phrase days and nights seems to imply 24 hours. You know, the Jewish day was reckoned from sunset to sunset, from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. And since Jesus' crucifixion ended late in the afternoon, the women hurried up the burial so they could observe the beginning of the special Friday Sabbath that started at sundown. Again, I believe Jesus was crucified on a Thursday. But you do your own research and you draw your own conclusion. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. And this was Rome's sole act of mercy. For once the victim's legs were broken, it was impossible for him to then push himself up, expand his lungs, and take his breath. And so the crucified person, once the legs were broken, would die of asphyxiation. They would literally suffocate to death. Breaking the legs of the victim put the person out of his misery. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Jesus was the exception to the custom. The soldiers didn't need to break his legs since Jesus was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Medical doctors tell us that the only time the blood breaks down into water and plasma is in the case of a ruptured heart. It's fascinating to me that Jesus literally died of a broken heart, literally. There's also some intriguing symbolism here. When God created the first Adam, he opened up his side and he removed a rib. And God used that rib to fashion for him a bride, brought him Eve. Now God opens up the side of the last Adam, Jesus, and he removes blood and water from his side that he will use to fashion for Jesus a bride, the church. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. Verse 35, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John was the eyewitness. And he reports these events to stir up your faith. If John were here tonight, he would tell us to close our eyes and whisper to ourselves, He did it for me. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled Not one of his bones shall be broken. This was a fulfillment of Exodus 12, verse 46. The law of Moses forbid the bones of the Passover lamb from being broken. And Jesus, of course, is our Passover. Well, verse 37 points out another fulfillment of prophecy. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. This is from Zechariah 12, verse 10. At Jesus' second coming, Last days Israel will look upon Jesus and they'll realize the mistake they made of rejecting him. In the end, the Jews will repent and believe. They'll look on him whom they had pierced. Verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Notice this, this Joseph, he had been a secret saint. He had been an undercover Christian. Now he comes out of the closet. And in a day when anybody and everybody with any kind of twisted perversion feels free to come out and flaunt their sin, don't you think it's high time that those of us who love Jesus also come out and go public with our faith? 
We need to be vocal with our faith. Let's not be secret Christians. Let's be bold and public and open about our faith. Joseph asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. There is an ancient record of the conversation between these two men. Pilate said, you know, Joe, you're usually a pretty stingy guy, you know. Are you sure you want to give away a perfectly good tomb? Joseph answered, oh, vague, governor. But Jesus only needs it for the weekend. It was a three-day lease. Verse 39. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. He should have saved his money. Here is the biggest waste of resources in the history of the world. The burial spices used on the body of Jesus. That was a waste. You know, it's interesting, too, the amount of spices that Nicodemus supplies. 100 pounds were the preparations for a king. I'm sure it revealed Nicodemus' feelings about Jesus. Nicodemus had embraced Jesus as his king. Verse 40, then they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. When Jesus came into the world, he was bound in swaddling clothes. Now he exits the world bound up with strips of linen cloth. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Jesus was laid in a new tomb, an unused tomb. Do you know why the lily is associated with Easter? It's because the blossom is shaped like a trumpet. In Bible times, trumpets were used to announce big events. And next time we gather, we're going to study these last two chapters in which John blows his trumpet and he sounds the good news that Jesus is risen.